open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As you um, turn there, I want to share with you um, a true story about a church in a major city. Somebody very reliable um, told me these stories. And, um, and so at the end of me telling you these stories, I'm going to actually tell you what the church is. So you can go Google them, look them up, and then start gossiping about this church because they're a little bit crazy. So um, the stories that I'm going to tell you are true. Number one, uh, in the church is a dad and um, his wife. We don't quite know what happened, but we do know that he remarried. And um, the woman he remarried, he invited his son to have an open sexual relationship with her. The church knows about it. And so did the leaders and approved it to the point where non-Christians have looked on this church and called them the immoral church. Second story, their worship was, we'll just say a little bit crazy. And so what would happen in this worship, we have this on good accounts, that you would go into the church and people would say they are filled with the spirit and that they would speak in angelic like languages or tongues. And they didn't know the language, so they would get up, and one person would get up, and they would start talking loudly in the middle of the service, and then another person would get up and talking loudly, more loudly than they do. And before you knew it, it was just kind of uh, a little bit crazy and insane. And, uh, and so outsiders would look at them and would call them crazy. They were truly a church that people talked about, but it was not the kind of reputation that you wanted. Now, all of you want to know, I will tell you this, and you can go look them up and find their website online. Finally, uh, the, the third thing that is true about this church is... Uh, they would celebrate communion, and they're not a huge church. They're just a well-known church. And so what they would do is they would celebrate communion on most weeks, and the way they would celebrate it is that like a potluck, people would bring food. Well, as you have with any city church, you have a group of rich people and a group of poor people. Um, and ideally, right, we all eat at the same table because we're one in Christ, but this church does not, did not quite do that. What they did is the, the rich people would sit at a table and they would eat their food, which is typically better than everybody else's, and then they would let the poor people who are in a different clique actually participate if there were leftovers. In fact, um, we'll just say they're a little bit liberal-leaning church, right? The wine flowed liberally, and so some, as a joke, you get it, okay? Uh, no, okay, good. All right, uh, so you'll laugh in like 10 seconds. You'll be like, oh, I get it. That was actually kind of funny. Okay. Uh, and then, so some people um, on good account would actually be, they'd have their biblical buzz in church. They'd be a little bit, little bit tipsy. Um, some of them would just be flat out drunk and people would know this. Uh, now, this is a true story of a true account of a real church in a real city. And this is uh, a church that is found in the city of Corinth. Um, this is the story of the church that we're going to read about um, this morning. And so I want you to imagine you're an apostle, you're the apostle Paul, and you visit this church and these kind of things are happening. What do you want to say to a church like this? <laughs> Grow up, stop being stupid, what are you doing? You know, like you want to instruct them? I mean, okay, Christians, we get a bad rap because there's a few crazy churches, right? And there are a lot of people, when you tell them that you're a Christian, ideas in churches like this, the ones that do the crazy things, um, you get their reputation. And it just, it kills me when people think that this is what Christianity is about. But Paul, Paul pens a letter, an open letter to the church in, a city, in the city of Corinth. And I'm going to just tell you, he's not happy about what they're doing. He is very frustrated. 
And I think sometimes if you're new to the Bible, you can think that um, maybe that all of the churches in the Bible are just great churches where everything is just fine and everybody's wonderful. And, and in fact, just the opposite is true. Some of them are pretty solid, but many of them were very jacked up and needed a lot of help. And so we find that Paul is going to talk to the Corinthian church, and it's in this context that we find the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind, this beautiful chapter. And what's interesting is that this chapter is in the middle of a book that is one big fat rebuke. In fact, when you hear this, the reason these things have to even be written is because the Corinthians did not intuitively understand what it meant to love. They needed to be taught how to love. Uh, The word remarkable, which is in the title of the sermon, it simply means this, something out of the ordinary that demands remark. (laughs) This church, people talked about it. It's out of the ordinary. But it was remarkable for all of the completely wrong reasons. How many of you would like to go to a church like that? Nobody raise your hands, put them down, don't do that. Uh, Way way back in the day, long time ago, 2001. uh, That was a joke too. You getting it? Okay, good. (laughs) Uh, I came to the Village Church for the first time. I was not on staff. There was this very fine, attractive young woman. And uh, don't worry, I married her, so it's all cool now. Uh, it sounds, sounds a little creepy, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> the pastor now. Uh, but truthfully, uh, there was this girl, and I was going to go to church wherever she went because I really wanted this girl to like me because I thought she was awesome. And um, so I started coming to church with my wife, Brianne, and and before that, um, we were at Moody Bible Institute. I was studying pastoral ministry, and I had a theological love for the church. I loved the potential of the church. I loved the mission of the church. I loved reading in the Bible about the local church. Um, I'd grown, grown up in a pretty good church. And, um, but I have to say, until I came to Village Church, um, this was the first time that I fell in love with not just what the church is, but I fell in love with a local church. And it was honestly the opposite of what you saw in Corinth. And I'll also be honest, like Village Church wasn't really my style of church. Like if you were to say to me, Michael, what are all of your preferences? Village Church wasn't my preference. But what happened is I got into this church, I found one of the most genuinely loving communities I had ever experienced in my life. And I have come to realize how precious and rare loving church communities are which is gut-wrenching to even have to say, but there is something beautiful and unique about a church, not a church that does everything perfectly or awesomely or is always culturally relevant, but there is something beautiful and compelling about a church that loves well. And I have to say that um, no place, no group of people have been more redeeming and healing in my life than this group of people. Now, you could say, Oh, yeah, Michael, you're the pastor. You're supposed to say that. Your church is the best. No, objectively, Village Church is the best church on the planet. You're visiting and you're thinking, no, my church is the best. You're wrong. Let's arm wrestle. I'll totally defeat you. And Village Church is going to be the best. I'm sort of kidding, but I'm not. Um, but my, my, my point in saying that is, is that, um, truthfully, like, I know that as a pastor there's things you're supposed to say. I get that. And I, I want to just transcend all of that for a moment and just say, as a man who is a broken sinner, who needs a community of people, who loves me really well, Village Church has been one of the most redeeming places. And when new people come in, I I always want to look at them and say, I just so badly want you to stay here because if you even get to experience a fraction of what I personally have experienced, like this could be one of the greatest experiences of your life. 
And, uh, and so I know like some of you are like, oh, you're figuring this place out, and they're all kind of weird, and we are, but you know what? Past the weirdness is a group of people who would give you their best for your best and for your joy. And, and it's also a group of people who do a lot of dumb things, and that's part of being in a church. Can I, can I get an amen on that one? Somebody? Nobody? Yeah? All right, good. Uh, I want to define agape love for you, and then we'll start to get into this text. From last week, agape love is a life po- posture of joyfully giving your best for the best of others. If you're new, you might be like, what is agape? Agape is the Greek New Testament word um, for love that I would say is the primary word that's used. There's other New Testament words, but this is the primary one. But in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13 especially, every time you see the word love, okay, it's going to be the word agape. And agape is a life posture of joyfully giving your best for the best of others. If you lack joy and you're doing something that is for the good of someone else, is that agape love? The answer is no. Agape love assumes that your heart wants to give that person your, your best. Now, in the Corinthian context, you need to understand a couple things, okay? The Corinthians have received the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that come with that, but they've received no training and no teaching, or at least very little training and teaching on how to use such power. And you know what happens when people, human beings with a sin nature, are given power? You know what they do? We use it selfishly. And unless somebody intervenes and tells you how to use power right, our human nature is to pervert power and to use it for our own selfish means. And so the Apostle Paul finally sees that they are misusing and abusing and being so selfish with the power of these spiritual gifts. And he has to come in and rebuke them and say, no, 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 no. There's a better way to do this. So now we're 2,000 years removed from this letter. Isn't that crazy to think this letter is 2,000 years old? But human nature and the power of the Holy Spirit resident inside of us has not changed. The Spirit is still powerful and we are still sinners prone to use the gifts and the ministries that God has assigned to us for selfish motives. Don't say amen to that. We already know it's true. So I want to make one thing clear. Even though people have not changed, okay, um, how sometimes we receive information does change. So in 1 Corinthians 13, there's a list I hate preaching on lists because I hate hearing sermons on lists, okay? Uh, And I want to just give you a little bit of context of how do you, as the person receiving this sermon or reading 1 Corinthians 13, how do you listen to and hear about or read about lists in Scripture? So lists do two things. Number one, they reveal us like a mirror. So, you know, you look at a mirror and you're like, man, I look so good. You're lying, okay? Okay. No, you look at a mirror, and most people automatically are like, oh, man, I'm too this, I'm too that. A mirror reveals yourself, unless you're in those department stores, by the way. They're like the skinny mirrors, and they always make you look 10 pounds thinner than you really are. The lying mirrors, hate those. But um, you look in a mirror, and it's like, wow, that is what you really are. You can't get away from what's in the mirror. And if you step back just from a distance and you take a global look at yourself, that's kind of what 1 Corinthians 13 is on love. You're just gonna, we're going to take a snapshot. We're going to take a picture of your heart. We're going to put your heart up against God's word. And I want you to just take a look at it. But then as we look at each of these words, we're going to zoom in. And you're going to look at your forehead and the wrinkles on it and your bald head and your sagging arms. And you're going to be frustrated in the 10 pounds of weight you gained. And, and you're going to get really dark. And you're going to be like so frustrated, right? And sometimes the closer you get to lists, It produces depression or sadness or frustration. But that's not God's intention when he puts lists in scripture. God's intention is that you would take a global look at yourself and then you'd get really close in the mirror and you'd look at yourself and you would be inspired to work on one or two things. 
And so if you leave here and God um, pricks your conscience and he says, you know what, there's one or two things I just want you to focus on. We can't do all of this at once, but one or two things I want you to focus on. And that's my hope for you. So in your, note, in your, in your notes, you'll see point number one, remarkable churches are, here's verse four, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Agape is patient. So I want to define patience for you. If you have notes, you can write this down. Very simple. Patience is suffering long with joy. Patience is suffering long with joy. If you cease to be patient with joy, you'll become bitter. Patience is the ability to endure irritating and annoying people with joy. Okay. Can I just, let's put all our cards on the table. Do you know that churches are filled with irritating and annoying people? Anybody? (laughs) Anybody? Anybody? Oh, we're here. Got it. Yes, that's true. Okay. Do you know that as awesome as you are, there are some people who find you irritating and annoying? Do you know that? So you come to Village Church. and On the one hand, I'm like, man, I love Village Church. So much love. What makes it loving is how we put up with each other's irritatingness and annoyingness, if that's a word, right? And so when you come to a church and you get to to be a part of a community, expect people to bother you, okay? Why? Because you're a sinner and they're sinners and we all have weird little habits and the closer we get to each other, the more those get clearly seen. It's like putting a magnifying glass in all your weird little habits, okay? It comes out in church. And so here's what sets apart a church that's loving from a church that is not loving. A remarkable church has the ability to put up, to suffer long with each other. But get this, not with just a, just with a smile, ha, 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 a facade, but truly with a spirit of joy. Why? Because that's what I want you to give me. Isn't it funny when you're annoying, you want people to put up with you and like you in the process? But when other people are annoying, you want to be like, they're so fill in the blank. We, we expect people to, put, I expect people to put up with me and be happy about it. And when they don't, I'm like, they're a jerk, right? And yet, what do we do to other people? And so we, we step back and Paul says, look, love is agape in a church. It's two things. And if you miss these two things, you miss agape. You put up with irritating and annoying people and you do it with joy. And I want to tell you uh, why we can do this. Because when you see somebody who's irritating and annoying, maybe not all the time or maybe they're just being that, here's what you know. That person is infinitely valuable to God. God loves that person, has died for that person, is possessive of that person, is protective of that person. And then you step back and say, wait a minute, like, that's how he feels about me. And so what happens when you're actually in those circumstances where people are bothering you and patience, enduring, suffering along with joy is hard, here's what you remember. This person is of infinite value to God, and that completely changes the way we see them. The reason patience is hard is because before we see people as valuable to God, we see them as an inconvenience to my agenda and my task. And so here's what we have to do. We have to step back and say, loving communities put up with each other. Can I get an amen on that one, right? Some of you are like, I'm not annoying. I'm awesome. That's annoying. The fact that you just thought that. That's annoying, okay? (laughs) Anyways, when patience ends, love ends. When patience ends, agape is gone. It ceases to be seen. When patience grows, agape love grows. My heart cries, I said this already, I don't want you to just put up with my bad, but I want you to like me in the process. That's what I want. 
So why would I not do that for you? Well, Michael, what could motivate me to like someone who's being annoying? Maybe it's that they're beautifully and infinitely valuable to God and they're more valuable than anything on this earth. And once you see people differently, it changes the way you process how irritating they can be. But then he says, number two, love is not just patient. Love is, agape love is kind. Agape love is kind. Let's call something out. Kindness is not niceness. It's not nicety. The two are very different. You can be kind on the front and your heart can be belligerent and angry. Okay? There's a fundamental difference between kindness and niceness. And so here I want to define kindness for you and then explain it. Kindness is this. Joy towards another person because they are valuable to you. Kindness is joy to another person because they're valuable to you. It is a transaction of joy. So I look at somebody and I see, I may not even know you, but you're valuable to God, therefore you're valuable to me. And I smile. And what do I want my smile to do to them? I want to transfer joy. I want to give them what is in my heart over to their heart. Now, I'll be honest, I have this issue, right? So there'll be like this mom with three kids and I open the door for her and she's in a flurry and she walks to the door and I'm like, oh, here you go. And she just walks through like she's entitled. And I have this problem. Sometimes I'm like, you're welcome. <laughs> Anybody? Am I the only one? Okay, I'm the worst person ever. Okay. Um, so I find myself doing this, and I'm like, what was that? Like, that completely ceased to be agape. And then, like, I'll do these nice things, and I'm trying to transfer joy to them. But then I realize when they don't receive it in the way I want them to, my love is actually contingent. I'm like, well, forget you. Fine, whatever. You're welcome. I'll go on to the next person, you know? And love and kindness, right, do not need to be given back. But I, my desire is to genuinely transfer joy to somebody else. My desire through my body language, through every way that I communicate, is that they might leave feeling with a true sense of joy. So there are four facts about kindness, and I want to help you understand these. Um, kindness, number one, is measurable. It is not ethereal. It's not out there. It's not some random idea. It is measurable, and there are four metrics to kindness. If you miss any of these, you will cease to be a kind person. Metric number one. It is, kindness is in the tone of your words. It is how you say something. You can tell somebody they're beautiful, and if your tone communicates the opposite, it ceases to be kindness. Kindness is not just in the tone of your words, but it's also in the content of your words. And so what you say is really important. Now, you know this, but there's two other factors here that make kindness very important. Kindness is nonverbal. So you can say the right things in the right tone, but if your nonverbals betray you, it will not be communicated as kindness. And so personally, I think this right here is the place where most Christians give them, honestly, the saddest gospel presentation, where our love stops being love because our nonverbals communicate disinterest regularly. Um, some of us, we just look miserable. Honestly, miserable. Even though we're happy, I'm like, hey, what's wrong? Oh, nothing. Well, then smile. Like, something. So it's, the stats are overwhelming that the majority of people do not come back to a church. I think it's 87% because the people were not perceived as kind. They were not perceived as nice. And so I, I am convinced for most churches, it takes one or two people who have a terrible resting face or who don't experience kindness in their heart, and an entire church can be stunted from growing because people come in and they meet this unkind face. It's amazing the power of one unkind person in a church. And so much of kindness is in our nonverbals. Like, I could be saying the right things in the right tone, but my body's like, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, cool, done, I'm done with you, I'm going to do another, another task, like, we're, we're, we're good, okay, good, right? Um, but if you, the way you communicate is one of the most important 
aspects of kindness. You can have the right words and the right tone, but if your nonverbals or your, we'll call it your resting face, the way you just look normally, doesn't communicate, it's a lie. And some of you would say, well, then what do I do? And I would say, get a new face, right? Like, <laughs> figure it out. I'll go up to some people on a Sunday morning, and I'll be like, do you, are you upset? No. Well, then why do you look like it? Smile, dude. Like, are you, are, you, are you hurt? Are you whatever, you know? No, I'm good. Well, you look like you want to kill me. So, like, what if a new person walks in and they're tender? What if they are just on the precipice of trusting in Christ or going into deep depression? And what if they walk in and they see, like, your bummer face, right? And they leave not knowing what's in your heart, but believing the lie of your nonverbals. I, I truly believe nonverbal communication is one of the most important kinds of communication that we have. And if people tell you you look upset regularly, we have to figure out how to accurately communicate with our faces what's truly in our hearts. Because that is the first line that people see. It's your face. It's your nonverbals. So I, on one level, it's funny. Get a new face. On the other hand, I've had to work on this a lot because they call it your resting face. I have a barf, a bad resting face. Okay, And I have to remind myself, my BRF is a lie. It's not actually true because what I feel in my heart is not always communicated through what my nonverbals say. Number four, you can have nice tone, great verbal content, wonderful nonverbals. Number four, the fourth metric of kindness is this. You have to mean it from your heart. You know why? Your eyes betray you. I can look in your eyes and I can tell you if you are not really joyful and wanting to transfer joy to me. If I'm just an inconvenience, if I'm just a person you say hi to in passing, I can truly tell the difference. Our eyes betray us. And this is where you can be nice but not kind. The biblical sense of kindness goes past just what you say, how you say it, and your nonverbals, and it goes right down to the core of your being. Do you truly find that person valuable? And do you find them so valuable that you want to transfer joy into their account? And so I, I've told you guys this a million times. My dream job is to be a professional greeter. Um, I just, it doesn't matter what event it is. I just want to be greeting, right? And so some of you are like, why is Pastor Michael out in the front? It's not because like, I'm a pastor and it's my job. If I wasn't a pastor, my ministry job would be head greeter. I would like, make sure that everybody gets a smile when they come in. Because here's why. Like, this is my heart. This is how I'm made. It's not for everybody. But I truly, when people come through these doors, especially kids, um, I just see people as valuable to God. God loves them. And if, my, if I could just like, give you one little like, ounce of transfer of joy, like, I'm a happy person. And sometimes I cross a line, I'm a hugger, you know, so I'll be like, ah, like a new visitor came and I, I hugged her and she's like, okay. And I'm like, sorry, I do that. Like, I forget, like, who's new and who's not. I just hug people, you know. And, and, and like, I'm trying because my heart genuinely sees you as valuable. I want to communicate that to you. Some people look at extroverts and you think, oh, they're just fake and whatnot. Some people are. But many of us, like, we truly, truly see that God has made you beautiful and special. And we, when you come in these doors, I want you just to feel joy. Uh, I love giving sad people big hugs. I especially love when people that I know are like, don't hug me. I'm like, too bad. You're going to get a hug anyways. Um, I don't care if you don't like it. Um, so number one, kindness is measurable. Number two, kindness immediately and always communicates value. When those four things are in place and they're genuine, when you can look in someone's eyes and you believe that they believe you're valuable, that is always transferred. It's always transferred. They may not respond in the way you want. You might want to be like, well, you're welcome, right? But to some degree, it's always transferred. 
And some people are so hurt and so wounded that they just can't receive it. They're just like, yeah, 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 whatever, they go on. But every true act of kindness, I believe, is measurably internalized in someone's soul. And again, some people are so wounded, they just can't give it back. They can't. But my offer of kindness is not contingent on you receiving it right now in the way I want you to receive it. I want to be kind from the heart because you're valuable to God. And God has been so kind to me with joy despite my annoying habits. I'm sure sometimes he's like, Michael, stop doing that. It's so dumb and immature. And yet he gives me joyful kindness day in and day out. How could I not give that away to people? And so just an encouragement for you. Number one, kindness is measurable. Number two, kindness immediately and always communicates value. Number three, kindness creates atmospheres. And I would say awesome atmospheres, okay? I love when people are genuinely kind. I love it. I love when they're patient, and I love when they're actually measurably transferring joy from one person to another, and there's actual measurable exchanges of joy happening in the giving and the receiving of kindness. You'll know kindness in a child when a child sees kindness because the child will always be comfortable around kind people. You'll also know children can pick up on niceties and not kindness. They will hide behind your leg and they will see when somebody is disingenuous. And if a child can see it, don't you think most adults can see it too? Yes, they can. Number four, kindness is the universal sign of safety. We don't even have to speak the same language in my face and my tone and my nonverbals can communicate, no, this, this is safe. This is okay. And so for me, I, I get why Paul steps back and says, uh, I'm going to give you two words. If you get these two words, agape love will, will flourish. If you can suffer long with joy, and if you can transfer joy, the joy that is in you to another person because of their infinite worth, you will watch agape love in any community flourish. And this church could become more remarkable than it even is. I love that I get to preach on 1 Corinthians 13. And I don't have to look at Village and be like, it's time for rebuke, kids. Like, like I'm so glad I can look at you and say, Village, um, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the response of new visitors is this is one of the most kind churches we've ever met. And I, I'm so personally encouraged by that. And here's what I believe you'll find. When you get past the curtain of kindness and you get to see what we're really made of, you will find a group of broken people who are by and large patiently putting up with each other and are extending and transferring kindness because we believe we are each infinitely valuable to God. Is it perfect? Please say no. You can say no. Please say no. 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 But it's good. It's compelling. It's beautiful. It's meaningful. And I so badly, when, again, I, when new people, people come in, I'm like, jump in. Just, just totally jump in. And then when you jump into a community group, this is where the rubber meets the road. Because honestly, a few hundred people on a Sunday morning will never be able to love well in this context. It's just not possible. But when you get into a community group and you start pouring yourself into that group, it's always weird at first, but over time you start realizing, like we mutually have committed to one another. Uh, we are going to encourage each other, transfer kindness, be patient with one another, put up with our annoying idiosyncrasies, and it's really a meaningful, awesome experience. And now we get to point number two. Remarkable churches definitely are not. Now, I want to give you a couple just categories before we get into this. Uh, number one, we talked about selfishness last week. Selfishness is a life posture of hoarding. It's taking things for your best, for your goodness, for your joy. It's taking, it's accruing, it's accumulating all of this stuff for my best, my good, my joy. And here's what you're going to find, that every single one of these items listed under, the, uh, under section number two are selfish in nature. Uh, selfishness is a posture that is self-protecting, self-promoting, self-accumulating. They're all about the self. 
And so as we read these things, again, my goal is not to crush you. My goal is that as you take a, a deeper look into the mirror and you look at maybe the wrinkles on your forehead or the whatever pieces that you don't like to see, that you would take that and you would focus on it because each of these are weeds that will choke out patience and kindness. Each of these are weeds that will slowly but surely choke out agape love. And so if you find them, go after them, pull them out by the, by the roots, you'll be much happier. Uh, the second thing I want to call attention to about this list is they're totally illogical. So you'll see the first one is envy. But here's, when has envy ever gotten you what you wanted? Like, ever. It doesn't. When has being, been, being easily irritated ever gotten you what you wanted? Never. Like, you're going to find every one of these responses are totally natural, totally human, but completely illogical because they always get for us the opposite of what we really want. And so I want to just put that into your categories. Even if you don't like the Bible or Jesus or God, look at this list and at least agree with me that people who do these, meaning us, are insane and illogical because it will never get you ever what you want. So let's look at the first one. Love does not envy. Envy is wanting what someone else has with resentment and discontentment. Again, I, I want to say to you, why, what drives you or motivates you that when you see somebody who has more than you, you dislike them? Can you, can you make a logical connection for me? You received this, therefore I don't like you. Really? Like you got a pay raise. I'm mad at you because you have more than me now. Really? It's that it's insane. When you really just think about some of these things, you're like, whoa, like they didn't choose that. Like, okay, some people have a better job or better this or better that or better. Like, how does it actually do you any good? Does that make your life better? Does that get you a pay raise? Does that get you more stuff that you apparently want? It actually accomplishes nothing but creates distance between you and that person. It's insane. I, I think about envy all the time, and I'm like, I think envy is a totally ludicrous emotion because it does nobody any good ever in any way, shape, or form, except it crushes your soul. Like, that's it. And we find this all the time. Somebody puts up a Facebook page or this and whatever, and like, oh, they're so this, they're so that. Really? Like, because they have what you want, now they're a terrible person? It's insane to me, but that is, that is human nature. So then, if love is not envy, then what does it do? Love, agape, rejoices with other people's benefits. Hear me, from the heart. When life goes well, we actually feel happy. When someone gets something that we want, but God has not determined to give it to us yet, and someone else gets it, we rejoice. For real rejoice. Envy will kill you. The ability to rejoice with those who rejoice is one of the most beautiful telling aspects of love. It is an application of kindness. I want you to hear this. It is not possible to envy somebody and love them simultaneously. The two cannot mutually coexist. The moment you begin envying what someone has, your agape love vanishes, and it becomes all about you. Number two, love, agape love does not boast. Boasting says this, my identity is in my stuff and my accomplishments. I hate boasting. I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, I'm probably sure I do it and you do it to some degree, but boasting is for children, okay? Boasting says, the most important thing about me is what I've done. Look how awesome I am. I built this empire. Look how much money I've accumulated. Boasting is what my children do. Boasting is spiritual immaturity. Boasting is childishness. 
Boasting is for little kids. Boasting is for people who have trite things and all they've accumulated is money and stuff. That's what boasting is. And boasting is not in a, cannot coexist with love because boasting fundamentally is about promotion of me, 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 me. Love is giving my best for the best of others and their joy. Okay? And when I'm in the middle of boasting, I'm promoting myself. So you would say to me, okay, Michael, then what does agape love do? Agape love makes much of others. Rather than needing to make much of yourself, look what I did, look what I accomplished, look how much I have, look how awesome I am. Agape love takes every opportunity to make much of others and lets others make much of you rather than you having to do it yourself. If somebody wants to pay you a compliment and saying you're so blank, awesome. You don't need to pay yourself compliments in front of a bunch of people. It shows yourself to be very, very immature. This is the kind of thing that I have to kind of take out of my children and say, no, 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 no. Children boast, mature people build other people up and call out what God has been doing in their life through them. And it doesn't mean you can't ever talk about some fun things with close people that have happened. Like, there's a difference between self-promotion and sharing good things that have happened in your life. If you can't see that, it takes a mature person to ride that line. Boasting always, always makes you irritating to other people. Can I get an amen on that one, right? How many of you have ever been sitting with somebody who's boasting? You're like, I really like that. I'm going to start doing that. Like, like never. And the very thing you want in boasting, which is other people to think highly of you, they actually think less of you because of your need to self-promote. It's actually insane. If you do it, you get the opposite of what you want. It is not possible to boast in front of somebody and to love them simultaneously. Love is not arrogant. Arrogance is to think more highly of oneself than it ought. Arrogance is taking credit away from somebody, usually God, sometimes people, and giving it to yourself. It is thinking you're better or more awesome than you actually are. Okay, then what does agape do? Agape loves to give credit where credit is due, and to deflect credit. The majority of you who have done great, awesome things, you've done it because of the team or the family behind you that has enabled you to do it. You are not independently awesome and wonderful and the perfect human being, amen, right? And so when somebody tells you and gives you credit, the majority of the time it is appropriate to deflect some sort of credit. Sometimes you can just say thank you and you can be humble and not let it go to your head and that's fine. But humble people do not take in compliments. Let them go to their head and think more highly of themselves than they ought to. Number five, love. Agape love is not rude. Rudeness is a life posture that says this. I'm more important than you. So of all of, all of these, may I just like poke on this one a little bit? Um, if you find rudeness in you, I truly believe this is probably the most insidious of all of these. Because let me just tell you what rudeness real-time communicates. It communicates that my menial task right now is infinitely more valuable than your soul. Rudeness prioritizes the menial, the trivial, the right now, the inconveniences of life over actual human beings made in the image of God. Rudeness says, I am the most important person and so is this task in front of me and if you make my life harder, I will treat you with a lack of kindness because you are an inconvenience to my task, you image bearer who is beautifully loved by God and the most important valuable entity on the planet. Do you see the, do you see the issue? 
So that when you start to find yourself being actually rude, it's actually insidious and it's, it's, a, it's a, a mirror of a great, uh, much more deeper issue. Love, agape love, does not insist on its own way. Okay, I'm going to tell you a story. I'll tell you a couple stories. They're totally true. They're going to sound insane. Um, I want you to go validate these with my wife because they're that crazy. Um, way back in the day, like 2001 again, um, I went to Florida with a group of five people and five students. We're broke college students. We had no money. And so we're at this conference, and it's lunchtime, and here's what we had for lunch. A bag of saltine crackers and a can of chicken. That's it. Six people. That's all we had to eat. A friend of mine says, I want all the crackers. Quote, just like that. I want all the crackers. We say, you can't have all the crackers. He says, no, but I want all the crackers. And we're like, you can't have all the crackers. So he says, you guys split the can of chicken, and I'll eat all the crackers. So I say to him, I don't think you're getting it. You're not having all the crackers. Everybody will split it. Everybody gets four crackers, and you get like two chunks of chicken. Okay, That's lunch. Deal with it. But I want all the crackers. And at this point, my friend who has much less patience than I says, you're not getting all the crackers. Stop it. So the kid walks off, pouts, and now five people split a bag of crackers and a can of chicken. <laughs> that night for dinner, same person says, we're trying to figure out what we're going to eat for dinner because we have no money and we're in Florida. He says, I want to stop at that fish restaurant, super expensive fish restaurant. And we say, we have no money. He says, but I want to go to that restaurant. I want fish. And we're like, for real? You can't have fish. We're not going to an expensive fish restaurant, so you can sit, and then we all get glasses of water, six people, right? And you get to chow down on fish while we're starving. Like, it's just not going to work that way. But I want fish. And I'm thinking to myself at this point, is he losing his mind? Because I know this guy really well. Like, is starvation getting to him? He's like, like, he didn't eat lunch, so maybe he's insane and grumpy. I don't know. And I get to a point with this kid, and if you ever want more stories, i got like 40 of them. I mean, it's just insane. I could keep going on and on and on. But like what marked his life and my friendship with him is he insisted on his own way all the time. I want it, I want it my way, and I want it first. And everybody who knew him and became close with him said, man, he's irritating and annoying, and we're going to give him patience and kindness. And it was really hard to find value in him and to, and to do it with joy. I mean, there were seasons we did better than others. But this was the story of my friendship with him. He insisted on his own way. Okay, Michael, well, if love does not insist on its own way, what does it do? Love goes last. That's what it does. It goes last. It, it, you, you got a bunch of people, you're going out to eat. Where do you want to eat? Love goes where somebody else would be more happy to go to eat. You get that? Like, people are fighting, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? What do you want? Love gives the, its best, its first options, and it gives it away to other people. Why? Because that's love. That is selflessness. Selfishness fights for, but I want this. I want it my way. I want it my way. And then it goes on. Love is not irritable. Okay, true story. I'm going to just totally be the worst human being on the planet. So this morning, I went to Starbucks, and I'm sitting there. I'm putting some thoughts together. And I'm looking over my sermon notes, and this kid, maybe 10 or 11 years old, he comes over, and he sits next to me. And you'd think he'd have space, but the kid's walking all over me, tripping on my computer bag, and I'm like, his leg is touching my leg. And then he pulls out his Halloween candy. And the kid is the loudest chewer on the planet. He opens up a Starburst. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I'm literally at this point in this section of my notes on my computer, and it says, Love is not irritable. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me, right? 
Like, I'm looking at this kid. He opens up another thing of candy. Then his dad walks in, and his dad walks in, looks at his kid, and I'm like, can we talk about how annoying and irritating your son is? Like, he's really, bo- I didn't say that. Don't get me wrong. I'm thinking this. Dad walks out. Kid then opens up his iPad phone, whatever, iPhone or whatever, and he's playing a war video game with the volume halfway up. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, what is happening right now? Chop, 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 and the Starburst and his candy, right? And I'm like, for real, like, this isn't funny. And I'm sitting here, and then the next one is, Love is not irritable or resentful. And I'm like, I resent this kid right now. I'm really angry. And I'm reading it, and I'm like, this is stupid. Love is totally irritable. What are you talking about? It's, uh, anyways. It was a moment. I laughed before I, like, I just had to deal with it. Patience. Gosh. Don, you were there this morning. You didn't see this kid. I don't know if you saw him, but you saw him. Good. Agape love. Let's annoyances roll off without negative emotions. I'm not saying you got to be there now, but I'm saying your ability to let stuff roll off has to grow if you're going to get agape. Because when we're easily irritable regularly all the time, here's what it says. You all exist to make me happy. And when you all don't make me happy, you invite my anger. It is narcissistic, selfish, and I'll just say rude and insidious. It is not possible to be easily irritated with somebody and love them simultaneously. Love is not resentful. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer it as quickly as you possibly can without thinking, okay? Not out loud. Who in this church would you love to just tell how you feel without consequences right now? Somebody shouted, you, in the last service. (laughs) Just like that. It's like, we should talk afterwards. That sounds like a a good conversation. Some of you, and immediately, somebody comes to mind, like, oh, if I could just, and I want to just tell you this, resentful, resentfulness is a bitter, 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 bitter weed that will choke your love and your joy. Kill it. Just kill it. Kill it, kill it, kill it. If you see that, if somebody came to mind and you're like, I'd like to have words with that person. They didn't meet my expectations, whatever it is. This will kill your soul. This will kill love. It is not possible to resent somebody and love them simultaneously. And then finally, verse 6, love, agape, does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't. When when your, quote, enemies fail, when justice happens and they're exposed for all they really are, right, do you rejoice at their downfall? And, And here's the hard part about love is agape love. It's giving your best for the best of somebody else. I mean, it's constantly giving and giving and giving. And and, and here's, here's what this means. How could I rejoice in somebody's sin, fall, struggle, and pain anytime? And yet, when there are people that we don't like and bad things happen to them, what do we do? Yes, serves them, right? And this is just a sign that agape is dwindling in your soul. You cannot simultaneously rejoice in someone's struggle and sin and love them simultaneously. Since posture is self-protection, self-promotion, self-accumulation, Agape love is a posture of joyfully giving your best for the best of others. I want to close. I want to read to you um, my personal notes on this section. Just a couple, um, couple words. And uh, usually, you know, there's, I leave this stuff out. But I wanted to share with you some things that God have been doing in my heart on this. I'll read it to you. There's a few passages of scripture that um, particularly come to mind. If I am going to be anything in life, 
let it be said that I am loving. If I'm going to be anything in life, let it be said that I'm loving. John 13, 34, a new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. A couple chapters later, John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment that you, say it with me, Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. And then later on in that same John 15, verse 16, look, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should live. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, all this stuff I'm talking about, here's the goal. Here's what I want you to leave with. These things I command you so that you will, say with me, love one another. So my ending thoughts were, if I'm going to be anything in life, let it be said that I'm loving. The virtue of love outweighs all other forms of success. There is no higher accomplishment. There is no higher mark of maturity, masculinity, or femininity. There is no better reputation to acquire or legacy to leave. There is no more meaningful inheritance you can pass down. Love with money is helpful. Money without love is a curse. Let's close and let's pray together. Father, first and foremost, thank you for loving us so wonderfully. Your kindness is unbelievable. We are so valuable to you. You have loved us. You've given us agape love. And you genuinely, you transfer your joy to us through your daily expressions of kindness in so many ways, let alone giving us your son, whom you poured out your anger and wrath at our sin on his back. And so God, I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for your patience that we honestly can be so irritating and annoying to you, but you suffer long with joy. And Lord, I pray the same way that you just love us with affection, endure our our, our quirks and our annoyances, Lord, that we would be able to do that for brothers and sisters in this church. May it be said more and more of Village Church that this is a remarkable church, that people don't talk about our lovelessness or our rudeness or our terseness, but they would talk about the true love, that this is a place of patience and kindness, that when you come in the front doors, it's not just niceties, but it's genuine. And when you unravel the curtain, that there is really truly a spirit of agape love that permeates a bunch of broken sinners giving their best for one another and being kind and patient in the process. And Lord, I pray for each one of us. I know that one or two or eight of those descriptions of what love is not was clearly in us. And God, you're so patient with us. And so I pray just one or two would would get to the surface and you would give us the grace and the power by the Holy Spirit to begin to overcome. And Lord, that we would not boast in our own ability to overcome, but we boast in Jesus Christ. And so God, we need to overcome. We need to overcome sin and selfishness, but you've given us your spirit. So that is my prayer. Thank you for loving us. And thank you now that we can stand and worship and lift high the name of Jesus Christ who has given us everything. So we love you because you first loved us and we worship you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.